what do you do with mystical experiences? I, I and, and what are they even? I, the way I understand uh, my own experiences and the ones that I've read about and heard other people talk about is that they are sort of, uh, uh, they, they make us stand back from our lives in which normally we're just totally embroiled and see them from the perspective of infinity and eternity. We see the long view and we see our lives against the backdrop of our certain death as well. And so what do you do with that? And, um, and it seems to me that you can go in two different directions as a result of that kind of uh, experience or as a result just of contemplating your mortality. Uh, one is to cherish life, cherish your own life, cherish every moment of it and be overwhelmed with gratitude uh, that you're alive and with compassion for the other mortal things around you, other people and other uh, living things. That's one direction. The other direction is toward not giving a shit about anything, toward a, a kind of extreme nihilism. Welcome to the Sacred Speaks. My name is John Price. I'm your host. Uncertain times. And I guess the, the thing I'm thinking about as I'm <laughs> giving this first draft of my intro is, uh, is my own anxiety management. And uh, obviously, if you listen to this podcast, you are seeing uh, a lot of podcast episodes come out. <laughs> there's, there's been three or four pretty quickly. Three. And the fourth is coming soon. And... Uh, one of the ways I manage my anxiety is curiosity and creativity. So I, I think both those things, both those boxes are checked in this podcast. Uh, so John Horgan is the guest today, and he, he's one of my favorite people. I, I really enjoy, I really enjoy him. So I'm feeling grateful that he was willing to have the conversation. We shared this conversation about a week and a half ago, maybe two weeks ago. And uh, I've been I've been working on a few other projects, so it's taken me a little while to get it ready. So, uh, not for lack of excitement, though, I'm I'm really excited to put it out today. We talk about some cool things and some scary things and some interesting things. And let me introduce you to John real quick, and then I'll get to some other points. So, where are you? So, John was in a previous podcast. I. If I was uh, prepared, I would have looked up which number it is, but I want to say it's like 37. If that's right, uh, I'm blown away. So uh, John and I shared a really nice conversation about his book, Mind Body Problems. I highly recommend going to mindbodyproblems with an S.com 
and checking it out. His website is John Horgan, H-O-R-G-A-N. It's J-O-H-N-H-O-R-G-A-N dot org. A uh, number of great books and uh, just all around interesting fella. So thanks, John, for the time. So John is a science journalist and director of the Center for Science Writings at Stevens Institute of Technology in Hoboken, New Jersey. He's a former senior writer at the Scientific American from 86 to 97, and he's written for the New York Times, National Geographic, Time, Newsweek, The Washington Post, Slate, and other publications. He writes the Crosscheck blog for Scientific American and produces mind-body problems for the online talk show, bloggingheads.tv.com. Or dot. That's just a period. <laughs> bloggingheads.tv. He tweets at Organism. Uh, so check out his book, Mind Body Problems. It is for five dollars on Amazon eBooks and fifteen in paperback, and it's also online for free. And he's funny, insightful, interesting, and uh, I think is able to hold himself accountable really well. So, bit of a love fest. So okay, uh, I got a lot to get to, so I want to be mindful of your time. So bands, you heard the first snippet from Quaker City Nighthawks. Fort Worth Band, I'm really excited to put them on the podcast. The first song was Tired of You Leaving, and it's on their 2019 release, uh, GCNH. At the, end of the, at the end of the episode, I put a full song, uh, song number two on that album, Suit in the Back. They got a great video on their website, and they've got a, some awesome music. I highly recommend checking this band out. Look them up at... Uh, where are you? Oh, come on. There we go. Quaker City Nighthawks, of course. <laughs> QuakerCityNighthawks.com uh, Good uh, good soul. Good, good music there. The theme music for the podcast is from Modern Nations. Get them at ModernNationsMusic.com The podcast is sponsored by the Center for the Healing Arts and Sciences in Houston. It's an integrative wellness center that my wife and I created. So it's, it's a hard-earned sponsorship. It's our, uh, it's our business. And it, lit- it does sponsor the podcast in more ways than one. So we got a lot of cool things going on right now, aside from the typical modes of uh, connecting with folks and helping them kind of manage the burdens that we carry, whether those be biological, psychological, spiritual, whatever they be. Um, we, we need an integrated approach. You know, the, the, uh, Jung imagined that neurosis is because of <laughs> a one-sided aspect of the psyche. And what happens certainly in Western approaches to what ails us is we go at it pretty one-sided. So if I, if I bust my knee, of course I want to have surgery, but there are other things that contributed to that. Uh, maybe the way I hold my body or uh, maybe the way I take risks. Uh, and we can take that and broaden it and, of course, apply it to all kinds of different issues. So check us out at the Center for Haas, the Center for HAS.com, and look it up on Instagram, all the things, at Center for Haas. Uh, and uh, and we're, we're just we're coming together right now and trying to figure out how to best support folks. One of the coolest things that's happened recently is my wife, our, uh, our co-owner and uh, lead traditional Chinese medicine physician and uh, acupuncturist. She's put together this amazing package 
for support. Now there are all kinds of different kinds, uh, all kinds of different packages, but in particular, there's an immune building package. So of course, these days we need to be concerned about how we're treating our body, mind, and spirit. And of course, what what that means is, you know, how you're eating, how you're sleeping, how you are, what you're taking in and consuming. And consumption is, of course, based on your, you know, what you're consuming literally, uh, the foods, the drink, but also what you're consuming psychologically and spiritually, the kind of news you're you're taking in, the information centers that you're turning to. And I think, uh, of course, the easy move is for us to pay attention to our fear, and of course the fear's real, and it's confusing right now, kind of all these different theories and ideas about how we should how we should behave and how we should envision what's going on. Is it economic? Is it kind of biological? Is it spiritual? Um, and, and I've been saying this a lot, and so if, pardon the re- redundancy here, but I've been looking a lot at Maslow's hierarchy of needs to make sense of h- how we can talk about a particular experience of what's going on while also honoring the universal experience of what's going on. So I, I work with uh, a number of folks each week, and I'm hearing all kinds of different I, ways of understanding what's happening. And people, on the one hand, are becoming creative and connecting with their family and playing board games, and they never did that. On the other, I work with folks that are diagnosed with COVID, and they're asymptomatic. Other folks that are working with folks who are diagnosed with COVID and are not asymptomatic, and in fact, it is very scary. Um, then there are fears, of course, economic fears and concerns about what this is doing. I have friends that are losing jobs and are very scared and concerned. So we're, we're in this together, and, and we're not all having the same experience. And I think it's very important for us to remember that fact. Uh, and I try to remind myself all the time of that fact. Okay, back to the packages, these wellness psychosoma packages. I'm kind of blessed here at the house because I have a partner who can order these things and supply our family with what we need. And there's a bit of a, an apothecary kind of ritual in the morning when we wake up with vitamin D and A and wellness support and different herbs, teas, you know, all kinds of different things. And she's just so consumed with how to, how to do what she does at a distance and provide support for people and their, you know, their health, wellness, and their bodies at a distance. So these packages are awesome. We're getting incredible feedback. My my wife, uh, Leela Scott, has in, <laughs> a, a wonderful feel for the aesthetic aspect of life. And so they are also very beautiful. Uh, if you're curious, check it out. Go onto the website. Go onto our Instagram page. There are a bunch of videos that we've got. The Center for Haas, or Center for Haas, is the, um, is the Instagram page. So check that out when you can. So uh, other cool things on, on that note, we're, I'm actually creating an album right now. Some of you have probably wondered why the hell music is such an important factor in this podcast. Well, I, I'm a huge music fan, and I'm also a musician. A previous podcast participant, Rodney Waters, and I have been working on an album to try to uh, live into that, to actually kind of do do things differently than we typically would have done, where most of the time I, I spend a lot, a lot of my time with family and working. Uh, and of course, now all those things are happening, but also I'm trying to be creative. And that's providing a lot of um, health, I think, for me. 
So be be uh, you'll I'll, I'll let you know when that happens. But we'll we'll hopefully release the album in about a month. Uh, we have no idea what we're going to call it. Although I'm I'm going with the working title of Quarantine Dream right now. My friend Taylor Tatch is helping us is producing engineering. <laughs> he's like the craziest maestro ever. Uh, but he's singing on it, playing guitar, playing drums. We we upload these files and send them over to him, and uh, and he kind of he, well, he doesn't kind of, he works with them and sends them back, and we kind of ping back and forth. So uh, if you've ever wanted to do something creative, now's the time. I highly recommend taking a walk in the grass without your shoes on and creating something that uh, gives your life a bit of meaning, uh, whatever that is. I hope you're well. I do. I hope you're well. And for those that aren't, I hope you're reaching out to people that can help you. So if you need any help or support, reach out to somebody, uh, whether that be a professional or a friend. And uh, if you need some support and some direction, you can reach out to us at the Center for the Healing Arts, and, and we'll, we'll try to do what we can. Okay, what else? Um, so, oh yeah, yeah. The, the thing that I've been thinking a lot about is, is this kind of, uh, the phrase, the, the unprecedented, this unprecedented time. And it, it, it's not unprecedented. Uh, you know, it, it's unprecedented for us. It, it's certainly unprecedented for me. And John said it best. He said, it's unprecedented in my life. And I think that those two words are really important to include in this because humanity has gone through some crazy shit. And we are, as a result of humanity emerging through that crazy shit. So, yes, it is unprecedented. Uh, in our lives. Um, but when we look at things like world wars and uh, uh, the Spanish flu and the plague, um, the, it, it is a number of events that have happened that have brought the collective a bit to their knees, to our knees. So we're in that. And again, now's the time, to, I think, to be reflective, to be contemplative, to be connected to each other, to be creative, to be expressive, and to analyze the fact that we just don't need as much shit as we've accumulated. And to, to really think about making things that matter, about meaningful connections that matter, about making our lives matter in a way um, that expands us and connects us and doesn't isolate and contract us. So despite being isolated right now, we can be incredibly connected and transform the 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 pace and the course of our lives together. And as you'll hear in the podcast, I'm, I'm pretty hopeful. Um, but I don't think that that hope means that we don't have a lot of work to do. So, um, I, I don't know. I love you. <laughs> um, Okay, I feel like that was a large preamble, and I know it was, so thanks for hanging with it, and if you didn't, I hope you're fast-forwarding to right now. Okay, what else? Anything else? Quaker City, uh, Center for the Healing Arts and Sciences, Sacred Speaks, check it out at thesacredspeaks.com. Um, I know I'm forgetting something. Oh yeah, the Center for the Healing Arts and Sciences will be releasing a podcast over a YouTube podcast or YouTube video and also an audio podcast where we just bring our practitioners together and share conversations about what we're seeing with kind of the collective, at least, you know, the, the groups that we work with and kind of sharing insight for how we work with folks. 
Um, it's going to be brief, which everybody's laughing because I've, I'm not known to be brief. <laughs> so um, we, we've just recorded our pilot episode. And it will come out in a week, I hope. Uh, and we'll be releasing one every week. So I'll let you know what the YouTube channel is and, uh, and where the podcast will be housed. Thanks for showing up. Thanks for being here. I'm really, I love doing this. So I'm, I'm, I hope you, uh, you get something out of it. And if you don't, just uh, don't listen again. <laughs> I'll leave it there. One of the main reasons why I immediately started emailing, you know, Stuart and you and Jeff Kripal and a number of other people, my my kind of go-to is to say, well, what's everybody, how are you thinking through all this? And then I was reading your blog, a number of your recent articles, and as a psychotherapist, I'm getting whiplashed all the time by all kinds of different experiences. And so you... I, I don't want to tee us up too much, but it's the, the there's such a diversity of of experience right now that is all related to one universal cause. You know, it, yeah, it's it's weird. Maybe more than than at any time in my life. I mean, nine eleven probably comes closest, but I think there were probably big parts of humanity that didn't really give a shit about 9-11. And I, I think this, uh, this virus has the attention of almost everybody on the planet yeah. um, in a way that is unprecedented in my lifetime. Yeah, I, I spoke with a fellow named George Fowler, who's up in your neck of the woods. He was a first responder at the Twin Towers. And, you know, from his what he said was, this is a lot worse than that was. And then we talked about why he believed that, because 9-11 is the signifier for a lot of us, you know, living through something that is traumatic on that kind of scale. And so people say, yeah, you know, it's a lot like that. But to hear people that were boots on the ground, frontliners, to say this is much different and worse. Well, because 9-11 happened in New York, and DC, you know, it, the effects, the psychological effects reverberated around the world, of course, but, uh, but everybody on the planet potentially is imperiled by this, this yeah. damn virus. So yeah, I, I think it's, it is unprecedented. Another difference is that after 9-11, I, you know, I was living just north of, uh, a city about 35 miles north in uh, this rural community, Garrison, New York. Um, and But a lot of people there uh, commuted. Uh, I could see the uh, New York skyline from uh, a hillside near my house. Uh, so, you know, it was right there. We were certainly uh, profoundly affected by it. But um, life went on. My kids were back in school the next week. You know, they, we took them out that day, but they were back in school the next week. Uh, I went to work the following day. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I was just writing at home, but, uh, but still almost everybody went back to work, 
restaurants were, were still open. So if you went into New York City, there was a pall cast over it. Um, but in many ways, the city, the city's business went on as usual. Right. Whereas now, uh, I mean, the, the world is shut down. Where I am, I'm in Hoboken. I'm, I can look out the window behind me and see New York City. New York City is shut down. And we don't know how long this is going to last and what the, what the uh, effects will be, which might be much more profound than 9-11 as significant as those effects were. And, and you're right that um, nobody knows. I mean, you know, all the pundits are trotting out their opinions. I certainly have tried to do that on my Scientific American blog, but uh, the uncertainties are vast. First of all, when it comes to the, uh, the pandemic itself, the, the virus itself, its infectiousness, its, its lethality, we still don't have a good handle on that. But then all these, economic and cultural changes that might result from this. Um, it's, it's really difficult to see in, into the future right now. Sure is. I, I wanna kind of try to structure this a little bit. And um, the, 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 the things I wanna throw out there, of course, the way you're thinking through this crisis and of course, I'll direct people to our previous conversation, but I wonder if maybe you spending just a bit of time talking about who you are and what you're up to. And then okay. we can um, also, also I was, I was kind of looking around at all your books that I've have around here. And um, I, I had completely intended to read the end of science when we spoke again, of course, the crisis is kind of bringing our conversation into a different mode. And so I, I want to, I'm at, my fantasy is that you have some thoughts that are rooted in what you were exploring in the end of science. My, my question is about how crisis and trauma shifts innovation and scientific um, ideas that have been kind of the zeitgeist and how that kind of shuffles things around a little bit. So I, I, I wonder if that's something you're thinking about, but We'll okay. Well, I hope I can remember that. Uh, no, I'll, I'll remind you. Okay. You remind <laughs> me. First, let me just give you a quick bio. Yeah. Uh, so I'm a science writer. Uh, I've been doing that since 1983. Um, I want, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be a scientist. And then it took me quite a while, but I eventually figured out that there was this thing I could do, science writing that would satisfy all my desires. And uh, it's really worked out that way. Uh, I started out, I think, as a conventional gee whiz cheerleading kind of science journalist, just telling people about the amazing things that scientists uh, are discovering and inventing. I became more critical as my career went on. I started out in an engineering magazine and I ended up at Scientific American in uh, the mid 80s, stayed there until uh, the late 1990s. And increasingly, I was looking at the limits of science and not just focusing on what science can do, uh, but on what maybe science can't do, what science cannot tell us about um, the universe and our place in it. And uh, 
my, I, you know, I'm not a postmodern skeptic. I think that science really discovers true things about the world. It reveals the world to us in extraordinary ways. Um, but there's some things that, I, that I've concluded that uh, we can't know. And my first book, The End of Science, was an attempt to, um, to lay out what science has told us so far, the sort of the big picture of science, and what maybe science will not be able to tell us in the future. And I, I, I argue that there are some mysteries that will never be solved, like the, the origin of the universe, the origin of life, and the nature of consciousness, and the uh, connection of consciousness of mind to matter. And I've basically just been continuing to explore those ideas uh, since then, both in books and uh, and articles. I'm I'm an old hippie, so I'm really interested in mysticism and psychedelics. So I wrote a book called Rational Mysticism. It's sort of about uh, about the possibility of mystical knowledge complementing scientific knowledge. I wrote a book just about what science knows or really doesn't know about the mind. That was called the Undiscovered Mind. Um, my most recent book is called Mind Body Problems. Uh, which again goes back to this, you know, the, the connection, this very mysterious connection of matter and mind. Probably my most anomalous book, The Outlier, is uh, The End of War, which I published about 10 years ago. And um, that goes back again to my youth. Uh, you know, I grew up in the 60s. I graduated from high school in 1971. I was eligible for the Vietnam draft, um, I was always, as soon as I learned about nuclear weapons when I was a little kid, I was horrified that these things existed. And so I've, I'm a peacenik going way back. And I wrote The End of War as a kind of argument to try to convince people that a world without war is possible. Um, all right, so your question uh, was, I, something like, is there a way of looking at this current crisis, this pandemic, in the light of some of the things that I've written about in the past, and especially in the end of science? Yeah, just just think, well, it, it's even less specific than that. The first thing is really broad, just to find out kind of how you're thinking through this. And then we can kind of get a little more specific. And, um, and I've got a number of questions. I mean, the, again, I don't want to, I want you to go wherever you feel you need to go. And so I'll, I can populate it, our, our conversation with a couple of ideas, but I just want you to sure. associate. Well, I'll, I'll tell you one, one thing that I, even before this happened, I, I had begun to think of science is what I value in science in more practical terms than previously. So one of the reasons I wanted to become a science writer and became one in the 1980s was because Stephen Hawking and some other very prominent scientists were saying that they were going to explain the world. They were going to solve the riddle of reality. Uh, there was this possibility of a unified theory of physics that would tell us how the universe was created in the first place, why it takes this particular structure that allowed for uh, our existence. Um, I'm, I'm 
interested in really deep philosophical questions uh, that are some of which are related to religion and theology. If, is there a purpose to existence? If so, what could it possibly be? Is there some kind of divine plan behind uh, existence? Uh, what is the nature of consciousness? Those sorts of things. I'm still fascinated by those questions. I love talking about philosophy. I think of myself as a kind of amateur philosopher, but I've begun to think that a lot of this stuff is not important enough for us to spend a lot of taxpayer dollars on. <laughs> and I've begun thinking more in terms of, as I said, this is before the crisis, before the pandemic hit, I've begun uh, thinking that, I don't know, building another gigantic particle particle accelerator to try to go deeper into the nature of matter. If that's costing many billions of dollars, maybe it's not worth it when there are all these terrible real world problems out there that we need to solve. Like war, um, like diseases, like inequality. Uh, some of these aren't so much scientific problems as uh, kind of social, political, cultural problems, but still science can help us analyze them and come up with more rational solutions. So I'd say that the, the pandemic has brought out this kind of practical side of me, this desire for science to have some usefulness even more than it was previously. I, I, I got a thought about that, which is an old story that you've probably heard before about the, you know, the, the sage who lives in the forest and pre-enlightenment is asked what he does. And he says, I just, I chop wood and carry water, you know, and then well, what do you do now that you're enlightened? I just chop wood and carry water. <laughs> and the, it's, it, I'm talking to people about how they're doing things like sweeping their floor and painting their house and you know of course certainly i want to cast a wide net here because i have friends who've lost their jobs people who are of course aff afflicted with this disease the virus and who are suffering the fallout from that and on the to on the other side of things is this like woe kind of moment about these questions about how we're living our life yeah. And, and so I, I think as, as I'm conversing with people, as we move through this, I, I, I keep thinking about Maslow's hierarchy of needs and, and how wherever you might be affected is the kind of level that you're operating on. And so some people are in this kind of self-actualization stage and some people are just trying to like find shelter. And, and so with that said, because um, because you addressed that in one of your articles on meditation, you were talking about kind of the what I'm hearing a lot about, whether it's survivor's guilt or, you know, is it self-indulgent to meditate, you know, when be self-reflective during a time of crisis. I'm hearing that a lot. So I wonder if we can kind of dive into some of that. Sure. Um, in some ways, I'm a writer. My kids are grown. I'm divorced. I have a I have a girlfriend in New York City across the river. I live in Hoboken, New Jersey. So she's, I can, I can practically see her apartment building. Um, and uh, I, you know, we see each other a few days a week. In some ways, my life hasn't changed that much. I'm still 
spending a lot of time hanging around in my apartment by myself, reading and thinking of, thinking of stuff to write about and, uh, and writing. Um, and, and as I said, I, you know, as you just said, I'm even still, um, meeting my meditation teacher, who's actually a good friend of mine and a colleague at the university where I teach and she's still teaching through zoom. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so yeah, I, I, in a way I sort of feel I'm always prone to guilt because I've had a, I've been very fortunate in my life and it's just through sheer luck. Um, and I, it's been a little exacerbated lately, uh, because, uh, in part because I, you know, I feel like I know a lot of people are suffering horribly out there and I'm not really. And so, um, last week when I met my group online to, uh, to meditate, um, and this happens to me a lot while I'm meditating, I'm trying to meditate and I, I can't stop thinking about the fact that I'm meditating. So I sort of go meta mm -hmm. on the meditation and, um, and then also because I'm such a compulsive writer, I'm while I'm thinking these thoughts, while I'm meditating, I'm thinking about things that I can write about this particular meditation session. And so I, I did that and I, uh, and I explored this guilt of mine and whether it's self-indulgent to meditate. Then I realized that that is kind of a, in a way it's a, I understand it's it's sort of a silly reaction to this. I mean, you, we all still have a responsibility to take care of ourselves, and the fact is that now it's it's more difficult to help others um, since we're supposed to be in this lockdown. I will say this: one of the most profound effects that this current crisis, if I may go veering in another direction, uh, is that is is the effect on uh, my optimism. I have become sort of, I, I think I've, I've been temperamentally optimistic for the last few decades uh, because I, you know, I, I, I love writing. I've had some success as a writer, so it's made me happy. I feel like I'm doing what I was meant to do and it's given me a lot of uh, satisfaction. Um, I was prone to depression when I was younger and I've, sort of uh, transcended that. Plus I had kids, that was wonderful and meaningful for me. Uh, and then I also felt that I should be intellectually more committed to optimism uh, because I have children. And then I started teaching uh, in 2005. I've been doing that for 15 years now. And I also started convincing myself that intellectuals and people who sort of write about stuff for a living and have an audience, and I'm lucky enough uh, to be in that position, sort of, it's, it's almost a duty, I think, to try to present the world in a positive light. That's why I wrote, wrote a, a book with this absurd title, The End of War. And most people think that's crazy, but I, I think it's that kind of optimism about the future is necessary to motivate us, to help create that future. Um, I wrote that book while Obama was president. And, and in that period, I really looked ahead and saw good things for humanity. Um, 
then Donald Trump got elected. And, uh, and now we're coping with uh, you know, this, this uh, crazy pandemic. Um, and it's, that's a real challenge for my optimism. So I'm, I find myself emotionally veering wildly back and forth between still pretty radical optimism that everything, that there are good things that are gonna come out of this crisis, this trauma that we're, we're in the middle of right now. And another part of me thinks things could really go south mm -hmm. and it could be kind of like a Mad Max world. Uh, and both of those extremes are probably um, implausible. Uh, and it's probably going to be somewhere in the middle. But um, yeah, I am still in that emotional, and I'm in that stage where I'm, I'm like being jerked around by my emotions, not only on a daily basis, but sometimes on an hourly basis. Well, John, that's the, that's what I'm seeing a lot of that. You know, when when the trauma happens and all the familiar pathways are, I mean, something as simple as your commute or, you know, who you tend to talk to, who you tend to associate with, who's who's on your call list, you know, uh, who do you do a happy hour with or go bowling with or whatever, when all those things go out, we're 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 put into the position to be self-reflective, and and so if optimism is kind of a a dominant way of viewing the world, whatever is underneath that comes up to the surface and you're like, well, shit, I got to take a look at that now. You know, I, you know, is that valuable or is, does that take me anywhere? And I'm sure for a writer, it takes you all kinds of great places. Cause you actually, you actually have a, a container to put all those kind of interior thought experiments, you know, and start to work through them. Yeah. I, yeah. I feel very fortunate. Writing is cathartic for me. Yeah. And, um, so I recently, early on in this, early on means, I don't know, like two weeks ago, which seems like an eternity ago, like, yeah. I, uh, you know, I was struggling with my emotions and I decided to write a piece about how I'm, I'm expecting good things to come from this uh, crisis. And um, I, I predicted, I just had all these uh, scenarios that I thought we could be headed for. Mainly it was that, um, that it will be the end of the Trump era, the end of predatory capitalism and extreme militarism, and uh, you know all this sort of racial and and uh, sexual um, conflict, and we'll be headed towards some kind of progressive, maybe not a utopia, but but moving in that direction. Uh, that. Um, We'd recognize first the need for universal health care. And this is all assuming that, I mean, this is maybe the weak, weak part of my argument. Joe Biden would win and would become an effective president, uh, but that he would feel a mandate. He'd win in a landslide. Uh, and, and he would feel that he was uh, empowered to move the country sharply left. And so there would be greater economic equality. We'd have tax reforms that would help bring about that about. We'd have something like uh, the Green New Deal. We'd mm -hmm. finally get serious about climate change. You know, if we can kick the ass of the coronavirus, surely we can take on climate change next. 
um, start reducing our military budget, divert that enormous amount of money and energy towards solving all these other uh, much more important problems than national defense, whatever the hell that is. Um, and so I laid that out. And then um, like a week later, I suddenly remembered this theory called terror management theory, um, which is several decades old. The, the general idea is that all humans, we, we all learn very early on in our lives that we're mortal creatures, we're going to die someday and all the people around us are, are going to die. And um, whether or not we're thinking about it, it's always, in us uh, at some level, even unconsciously. And that has enormous consequences. There was an anthropologist named Ernest Becker who wrote a book called Denial, The Denial of Death. And it inspired this theory called terror management theory. The general idea of the theory is that when we're reminded even subliminally of death, um, it makes us cling more tightly to our belief systems, especially those belief systems which make us feel like we're part of something bigger than us uh, that will endure after we're dead. So religion is an obvious yeah. example, but politics as well. And um, so one of the predictions of terror management theory, and this comes specifically from uh, one of the people who's been its major advocate, a, a psychologist named um, Sheldon Solomon. One of the predictions is that when there's a a big trauma like a like a terrorist attack or like a pandemic people will become more religious they will become more attached to their own political ideology and less tolerant of people who don't share their values so you have an increase possibly in xenophobia and racism and uh another prediction of the theory is that we are more attractive uh, attracted to really authoritarian leaders who act like they know all the answers. Um, and, you know, that's, it looks like, one of the reasons I wrote this post was because I'd seen the polls suggesting that Trump is actually doing better lately um, in the eyes of many people. Yeah. Um, his, his approval ratings, um, because of his handling, or in my, in my view, mishandling of the coronavirus uh, pandemic. So yeah, so that led me to write this really gloomy piece. Uh, and- uh, Well, if we're holding on to that tension between, you know, close to utopia and close to Mad Max, <laughs> that's a good, <laughs> I, I had that, like, let's, let's, run the, let's run the experiment for a second. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm curious. You know why? If you've got, if you have a, I mean, if this terror management theory is, it, it it certainly makes sense to me. But again, I also can argue the other side, which is that I, all those religious traditions, whether it's Tibetan Buddhism or kind of more mystical Judaism, there there is a an awareness, an intentionality around bringing the awareness of your own death to the forefront of your mind every day. 
and you know the, all those, especially in Tibetan Buddhism, when you have the kind of imagine your decaying corpse and sit there with the the inevitability of your impermanence, and of of course people go fuck. Why would I do? <laughs> you, you crazy? But what it what it tends to do is have the opposite effect of like a horror film. It it gets you in touch with life, life giving, and so. I uh, we have a bias here, which we need to be conscious of. Is that that's where I tend to bias? Yeah, I, I so this this is related to as I I said earlier. I, I'm really interested in mysticism. I took a lot of psychedelics uh, when I was a kid, and actually continued taking them for much of my life. I, I meditate. I'm interested in mystical literature, uh, the varieties of religious experience. Yeah. It's one of my favorite books. Um, what do you do with mystical experiences? I, I and and what are they even? I the way I understand uh, my own experiences and the ones that I've read about and heard other people talk about is that they are sort of uh, uh, they they make us stand back from our lives, in which normally we're just totally embroiled and see them from the perspective of infinity and eternity. We see the long view and we see our lives against the backdrop of our certain death as well. And so what do you do with that? And, um, and it seems to me that you can go in two different directions as a result of that kind of uh, experience or as a result just of contemplating your mortality. Uh, one is to cherish life, cherish your own life, cherish every moment of it, and be overwhelmed with gratitude uh, that you're alive and with compassion for the other mortal things around you, other people and other uh, living things. That's one direction. The other direction is toward not giving a shit about anything, toward a, a kind of extreme nihilism and um, and I think that if you look at the history of spirituality in this country, and even sort of at the modern scene of modern Buddhism, you looked at, at the behavior of some really prominent spiritual teachers, Buddhist teachers, um, you know, gurus who have purported to be enlightened and tell us how to get enlightened ourselves. Some of them have behaved so badly. I mean, they might just be common crooks and mm -hmm. con men. Right. But I think some of them are actually mystics who've become nihilists mm -hmm. and uh, who are so, their reaction to mortality and the fleetingness of life is to like not give a shit. This too shall pass. My suffering, who cares? Your suffering. Who cares? Uh, so it can lead, I think, to chaos and anarchy and and uh, cruelty. Even that's my concern. Mystical and non-or you know you would put I would put you know mystical in the heading of a non-ordinary experience, and and back to that kind of the familiar pathways are washed. And so our, our, we immediately go into a state of chaos. 
you know, because all those things that I have to cling to, whether they parts of my identity, my drive to work, my, you know, my, the amount of income that's coming into my bank account at predictive times, all that goes away. And yeah. so, so what's, what's fascinating to me, and again, this is my bias and it's my concern and I understand it's not universal. I, I think, well, shit, you know, what an opportunity to begin to reconstruct because in my own personal traumas, they, they have proven to be opportunities to, to rebuild, to, to, that's, that's kind of a mechanistic image, but it, but it, it is. It's like by brick by brick, I can kind of put things back in different, more fortified ways. Maybe that doesn't serve me because it's in service to fear, but maybe maybe it does. You know, and that's that this liminal state that we're in right now. Because you know, who knows? We don't know. We don't know. But yeah. but I I think on some level, every one of us is being met by a non ordinary, somewhat mystical event. That, and here's here's a question I have. Stu and I kind of got into this, but I I want to. What do you think is different, you know, about this particular time? I mean, what we've had the Spanish flu, we've had plague, we've had world wars, Vietnam. This, I can't fit because I because I wasn't in I wasn't around, you know, when all, a lot of that was going on. Um, of course, I was for nine eleven, but. So I, I can't really say, well, this is completely unprecedented because I wasn't around in 1918, but it it still feels different to a lot of people. You got a theory on that? Well, I, I don't want to, I mean, if you're going back to World War II and World War I, <laughs> I, I would imagine that uh, I wouldn't want to say that what we're going through now is worse than those. Right. I, 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 I think the, what's frightening right now is that some, some, I think it's, it's reasonable to think that civilization itself, as we've known it, might be radically altered in various ways, good or bad. Um, I think that's what World War I did, I, World War II even more, especially when the Nazis were ascendant and um, you know these fascist regimes, Nazi Germany, Imperial Japan, uh, are we going to, and you know those countries plus the Soviet Union, are we headed to, toward um, totalitarianism around the world where democracy becomes a minority uh, form of social organization. Um, that's pretty daunting. And I kind of feel like that sort of reassessment of the future of civilization and the whole notion of social progress, um, I feel like that's what we're going through right now. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I've been wondering what somebody like Steven Pinker thinks. Pinker is the, you know, Mr. Happy at uh, Harvard, a psychologist who's written, I think, pretty persuasively about how, what a wonderful era we live in, how, how life is getting better and better mm -hmm. for more and more people around the world massively uh, on all these fronts, better health, more wealth, uh, more freedom. Uh, 
and and less violence actually at least compared to uh, the first half of the 20th century and um, you know I, I bought into that and again that's why I wrote a book called the end of war I and I've I've written about the possibility of what you might reasonably call utopia or a paradise where you know bad stuff still happens life is still really painful and difficult uh, but that we've transcended a lot of of age-old problems like severe inequality and racism and sexism and war and now I don't know if that kind of optimism and belief in progress is valid anymore I certainly hope it is but um, it's really I, I'm sure all optimists around the world have at least been really shaken by what's going on Although it, it it just seems to me that somebody's going to see, it, you know, back to perception, somebody will perceive an event based upon their dominant personality type. And so, it's that old data point I'm sure you've heard about. Like if you look, if you pre and post test people who've lost the use of their limbs and lottery winners, about six months after the event, they've returned to baseline. You know, they Right. We, we kind of tend to return to wh where we were. It, it's it's our fantasy that you know. Oh my God! If I win win the lottery, I'll be so happy, you know. Or if I lost the use of my limbs, I'd be so depressed. And that's not the case. Well, in this case, I don't know if you're talking about tens of millions of people losing their jobs just in this country. Um, that I think you know these kinds of episodes. Uh, where you're not, it's not just your, your personal well-being, but yeah. you know, the, the well-being of the social fabric are in question. Uh, I do think it's possible for us to slip into a kind of national psychological depression yeah. as well as, uh, as an economic depression. Um, and, you know, I think we need to resist that. I'm a big believer in wishful thinking as a kind of, um, as a way of setting goals for ourselves that are reasonable and then working toward them. Mm -hmm. Without wishful thinking, there wouldn't have been much social progress throughout human history. Uh, so I'm hoping this is a temporary setback and that things actually might get better. I'm not sure if you were recording this uh, at the very beginning of our conversation, but, uh, but I, I have this student who just presented me uh, with an outline for a talk that she wants to give um, next week, actually. And this is a seminar in science writing. And uh, they all have to do oral presentations soon. And, and she wants to talk about how this pandemic will force us to, to it's like we're all in, on involuntary retreats right now, mm -hmm. right? And, um, you know, a lot of a lot of people are sitting alone by themselves, or isolated with uh, immediate family members, or probably driving their them crazy. And so, some of us have more time for introspection than we're used to. What do we do with that? And and she sort of collected all these opinions, which lean in the direction of less mindless consumerism and materialism, and a return to I don't know. Some, uh, some values that 
I think were briefly popular when I was young, when I was a teenager in the 60s and early 70s, and there was Woodstock and and hippie culture and people living on teepees in the in teepees in the woods and all that kind of stuff. There was a book called Small is Beautiful that had a huge impact on people. Again, it was about reducing the stuff, getting away from having jobs just to buy more and more stuff and mm -hmm. finding some kind of more fundamental, uh, meaningful existence. I really hope that happens. That's my hope. I mean, that, that's the hope that w when I work with, whether it be my own or other people's traumas, we even, I, I use this example a lot of times when it comes to uh, groups where people who've been diagnosed with cancer, they, they come together and there's a notable shift in the group dynamic wherein at the beginning, there's, there's almost this kind of victimized sense, you know, like I'm angry with God or, you know, why does my body fail me? Or how could I have smoked? You know, that, this kind of guilt and this thing happened to me and I'm hurt. And the, as the group progresses, there, uh, a survivor mentality shows up. And, and of course, back to your earlier point, people are then connected with that more of a spiritual worldview, which they want to give back. They want to connect with people that they love and care for, reconnect with people they've lost touch with. You know, all these really meaningful and you know, immaterial um, aspects of living. And, and yeah. so I, I can't help but, you know, based on my psychological experience, my experience as a psychotherapist, but also my general psychology, uh, that again, that's my bias. I see it in my daily living with people. I've experienced it and I project into this my hope. That, that that happens too. So you're feeling your sense, and you know you're 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 an expert. You're a psychotherapist. You're a psychologist. You're a clinical psychologist, right? I'm a psychologist, Jungian psychologist. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, and you know you have a lot of data in having seen patients, um, and and so you're feeling like we're going to. You're you're leaning toward the positive side of things. I do. This might make the, things better. The one disclaimer is I don't want to be like, you know, Sigmund Freud in Vienna and base my entire theory on, you know, <laughs> that subgroup of wealthy white people. Right. I So I, with a disclaimer that, you know, given our geography, our um, economy uh, here in Houston, you know, all, all those variables, um, it, it, it skews my perspective, but I also read a shitload of books on these subjects. And, and we, we hear, I even talked to George Fowler about this before, we hear a lot about post-traumatic growth now. And, and so people are, are, are looking at stress, looking at trauma, not in a way to romanticize trauma or even position ourselves to try to be traumatized, which sounds you know, wild, but it is that the way we adapt, understand, move through any trauma has certain potentials and patterns that can emerge if there is a certain healthy holding container. I mean, if I have nobody to connect with, if I have no mentorship, if I have no education, I, I, I'm struggling a lot more. But if I have these certain variables that come in, these kind of support beams and guide rails, 
there's some kind of mechanism, and this was Jung's core theory also, there's some core mechanism inside of me, like the tree, you know, is going to grow until it doesn't anymore. You know, my biology, my psychology, my spirituality is set up to be growth oriented. And, and so those traumas that hit me, just like the, the drought brings about certain consequences to the forest or the forest fire brings about a consequence to the forest, you know, over back to your point on mysticism, if we kind of broaden our view, growth is, is life, love is I think the essence. And so that tends to be my bias. Uh, yeah. That's, uh, I would like to share that view. I think we have a lot in common uh, when it comes to looking at the future and how this might affect us. I sort of feel like, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm wary of my own bias toward optimism Me as too. well. So I'm, you know, I've, I've seen uh, that the WHO has warned that they, there seems to be a global increase in uh, domestic abuse happening now. Yes. Um, and uh, I'm wondering if the reaction to uh, trauma that you're describing and that's part of uh, Jungian psychology is, to put it really crassly, is um, something that Trump voters would undergo. <laughs> um, yeah. Maybe that maybe they would, uh, but you know that that's kind of the world we live in. Is that I, I you know, when I, I I realize that they're just people who are reacting to events just totally differently. I I try to actually to avoid seeing Trump on television, but whenever I do, I'm just appalled. Yeah, I just that the that like the. I mean, I don't have to. I don't have to say it for you. You know what I mean. And and then and that a lot of about half of the country um, thinks he's doing a good job uh, is like, it blows my mind. Um, so, you know, there's that. On the other hand, to make this sort of, take it out of the realm of psychology and make it political, I've been thinking about writing a blog post on, uh, on how this crisis will make us all more socialist. And it's already happening in, in Great Britain. I, I, uh, somebody sent me an article by a British scholar who pointed out that the conservative government led by um, Boris Johnson has already sort of quietly instituted some massive socialist programs in response to, uh, to the pandemic. Uh, the United States is passing this gigantic relief package, which is like Socialism, just sending money to everybody in the country. Um, and even Trump recently said something like, you know, like he just discovered it. Hey, there are 30 or 40 million uninsured people in this country. That doesn't seem right. Yeah. <laughs> so um, again, that makes me that makes me hopeful that we'll come together and there will be uh, more sharing of resources. You know, the people, the haves will help out the have-nots more than has happened in the past. Um, I certainly hope so. And of course, I think these, these things are complementary, what you're talking about, the response of people to trauma and how it might uh, make them, I don't know, more open-minded and tolerant and compassionate uh, toward others and 
and get them to be more spiritual, whatever that means. Um, maybe less, uh, just less materialistic. Um, that that connects with this kind of movement toward leftism or progressivism that I'm talking about. Um, I think we'll probably know more in the next few weeks. And of course, we'll know a lot more as the summer goes on and the uh, people start paying attention to the presidential election again. Right. Bernie Sanders just dropped out yesterday. So now it's definitely going to be Biden. Um, and, uh, you know, I hope Biden is up to the challenge. Um, we'll see. I, you know, here's how optimistic I am. I even, I wrote this piece on how everything could become more progressive as a result of this uh, uh, the pandemic. And at the and that's all assuming that Biden would win, Democrats would win in landslides across the country, throw out the uh, Republican bums, and um, all these cool new things would happen, a Green New Deal and, and all that kind of stuff. But then at the very end, I said, even if Trump is elected, all these things might happen. In part because Trump is so narcissistic what he wants to be seen as more than anything is as the savior of humanity. He wants to be seen as the greatest hit leader in the history of the world. And so for purely narcissistic reasons, he might actually move toward some of these progressive ideals and might even move away from stupid, wasteful materialism um, in ways that I've been hoping forever, basically. Uh, you know, after I, I wrote this down, then I kind of said, ah, I'm just kidding. That's never going to happen. But I got to admit, a little part of me still hopes it might happen because now it's I'm, I'm, I have to say it's looking more likely that Trump will be reelected. I asked a guy once who um, is in the, uh, the public eye a lot. And I said, who, who's who's more powerful, like the studio exec? Or, or the people, and he immediately was like, "Duh, the people." I mean, it's it. What? And th again, we're not saying anything new here, but if if people would recognize the the power in their perception and and the validity of their perception, and to to try to get beyond the sense of helplessness, like what do what, what do I do to even participate in this larger conversation about you know political, economic, you know whatever. If that sense of helplessness, um, and I don't mean that so pejoratively, but it, it's just natural. Like I feel it all the time. Yeah. So what what's happening here is that you know we individually we're we're mattering. You know the connecting with your kids in a different way, sweeping your house in a different way, painting that thing you need to, trying to maneuver through a very difficult economic time. You know, and I, I do want to circle back quickly, because when we speak about things like this, it's very difficult not to maintain the sense of paradox that's so totally present. So how do I talk about something globally and so the universal and the particular simultaneously, recognizing that there's something universally happening, but there are, there are particulars that are different. And that's why it's so difficult to make these sweeping generalizations. And certainly people who are sick or suffering are like, fuck these guys talking about positivity and bullshit like that. Fuck you. And, and I think that's warranted. I, I, I don't, I, I think that voice needs to be heard. 
and and we also need to recognize that when we're talking about these things, we're we're trying to address a lot of different value systems simultaneously. And so so with considering I know you a bit, when as we keep talking about optimism, I I think about a paradox, which is how much of a skeptic you are. And so I hold, I, I like holding this, and I want to hear you talk about this, your skepticism and your optimism and how you manage that. Yeah. Uh, my skepticism is, um, yeah, I'm really inconsistent actually in my, uh, in my skepticism. Um, it applies mainly to, so I can be really mean to scientists in certain fields. I, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of time bashing uh, string theorists. Um, these are the people who think that there's, that all of reality comes down to these little string-like particles wriggling in, in 10 dimensions. And I, you know, I've mocked that theory mercilessly for more than 30 years now. Um, even though some of the smartest people in the world are advocating it. Uh, multiverse theories, the idea that our universe is just one and an infinite number of uh, theories I've criticized. I basically, I look for the biggest, most ambitious, grandiose theories, and I love puncturing them. I just get, I don't know, it's probably a childish or adolescent pleasure <laughs> in, uh, in sort of popping the balloons of really smart, people who I think might be a little bit too full of themselves. I can also be really vicious when it comes to more practical fields like, like, uh, like medicine. Um, I've, I've written uh, just a couple of months ago, I wrote a really tough takedown of the cancer, cancer industry and said that cancer medicine actually is in horrible shape right now. And you know we're spending huge amounts of money and getting really shitty care. And there's a huge divide between the uh, reality of cancer care and the hype that we're all exposed to. Um, but then when it comes to, and, and you know, I've laid out this very dismal picture of the future of science in my book, The End of Science. And that was in the mid nineties. And I've continued um, making these claims about the limits of science ever since then. Uh, but when it comes to, Human social progress. I'm, I'm, I'm not a skeptic. I'm an optimist. I, I think maybe in part it's as penance for having been so critical early in my career and written a book like The End of Science. That's why I had to write a book called The End of War. But it's also because I, I think that some of these social goals that I'm really optimistic about, uh, they're not. It's not a matter of lacking knowledge, it's a matter of willpower, really, of having, of seeing ourselves in a positive light, which I think is merited by all the progress we've actually made in the realm of civil rights and, and, uh, and so forth. And um, so I guess I'm trying to say that there's not a contradiction between my extreme skepticism about certain realms of science and even applied science and my hopes for continued social progress and even for something like the end of war. But I, I have to admit to, to some people who are sort of trying to 
evaluate my career. And there are a few people who've actually tried to do that. Uh, it looks like it's, it looks incoherent. But it seems so, like you, you take on fundamentalism. Okay. I, uh, I like that. I, I think that if I have, if you ha I have kind of a, a guiding ideology or principle, it's that, um, certainty is a great danger for humans. Yes. Um, and that doubt is a wonderful thing. Uh, not a wonderful thing. In some cases, doubt is, is, can really hurt us and undercut us. But in general, um, cer certainty, especially when we're talking about ourselves and how to understand ourselves, and about the meaning of life and what constitutes a good life and how we should organize ourselves. If you look at human history, it seems obvious to me that certainty about politics and religion and you know the big belief systems by which we live our lives has caused tremendous amounts of, of uh, suffering and death and mayhem, genocide and slavery and all that. And so the trick is sort of having goals about the future, some of which might actually seem kind of utopian, like the end of war, or maybe the end of uh, uh, extreme uh, inequality and predatory capitalism, and yet not being too dogmatic about how we get there. Yeah. Because, you know, the, the, the reason why I think fundamentalism shows up is because it transcends any ideology. It, can, it shows up in all of them, you know, and that's, we, we all need to be careful of the fundamentalist inside of each of us. And, uh, and I, I think that's a pretty healthy uh, part of you. That's a trickster part of you that likes to poke at that, uh, <laughs> those rather uh, firmly bound uh, conclusions that want to say, this is it. Yeah. Um, well, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, I, I admit it's not, you know, I, I get maybe a little too much glee out of it sometimes. Uh, <laughs> being the, uh, the skeptic. I'm I'm accused sometimes of being a, a, a contrarian, and it bothers me because it makes it seem as though I'm kind of a, knee, a knee jerk skeptic. Yeah. Um, but there's a little bit of truth in that. Um, I like to think I apply my skepticism to my own ideas. When you know I'm a teacher, and so and I, I and I'm giving my students a big dose of my views of science and politics and all that. And I, I say in the beginning of the semester, um, and you know, don't trust anybody, including your professor here. And um, and most of them actually follow that rule, maybe even a more, more than I would like over the course of the semester. And they're not afraid to call me on my own bullshit. You're a good teacher. I want yeah. I, I know we got to finish, but I want to read something that you wrote. And um, it may be a good way to close out. It may not. So you see what, uh, what you think. There's two quotes that I just read in your recent post. The task of science is to find patterns in nature. There's always the danger that you will see patterns where there are none. I think though there's always the danger. And, and similarly, science today is locked into paradigms. Every avenue is blocked by beliefs that are wrong. And if you try to get uh, anything published by a journal today, you'll find, um, my writing is missed, uh, you'll find uh, that the editors will turn you down. Right. And this was from Hoyle that you were that you were quoting, and so I I I do wonder about the 
the information centers that we believe and that we trust and those pathways that get disrupted through times like this where our skepticism, I mean, we're collectively, some of us are collectively skeptical of the powers that be and others are clinging to those powers that be. I guess what it really comes down to is your own temperament and experience. So I, I'm wondering if there's anything you want to state about kind of science as it as it relates to patterns and paradigm shifts. Um, I'll say this. So yeah, that those quotes were from uh, this this uh, profile that I wrote of uh, one of the greatest astronomers of the 20th century, a guy named Fred Hoyle, who uh, coined the term Big Bang to describe um, you know, the, the idea of the universe having a beginning and still expanding today, and yet always hated the theory. He's this really contrary, paradoxical uh, figure. He is sort of an establishment figure and a maverick at the same time. And I, I guess I feel a little kinship with him. Uh, maybe I'll just make a final comment on, on authorities whether scientific or political, I, you know, I'm sort of anti-authoritarian uh, going back to my youth again in the 60s. But I still, I, I have more respect than I used to for institutions. And I think that this current crisis we're going through shows the need for smart, responsible leadership and experts whom we can trust. I think that trust is really lacking in this country now. Mm -hmm. And um, another one of the big questions posed by this crisis right now is what will happen to public trust in scientific and political and spiritual authorities in the future? Some skepticism, of authority is always uh, a good idea, but skepticism can go too far and, and become nihilistic and anarchic. And uh, I might've been attracted to nihilism and anarchy when I was 20 years old, but I'm not anymore. I don't want that kind of future for my kids. So we'll see what happens. John, thanks for spending the time with me today. Sure. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. It's really meaningful to uh, work these ideas over with you. Yeah, I, I enjoy it too. Boy, you gotta lose something if you wanna live that way. Boy, you gotta lose something if you wanna live that way. To stop the interstate It's a nothing in a minute uh, It's a second and he's gonna teach a lesson About the message and how they send it I'm not sure if I can keep it out here 
I'm not sure if I 